turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. John chapter 13. I want to read our text here this morning before we get into the message. Uh, We're up to verse uh, uh, 21. Verse 20 was the memory verse for this week. Let me just go back to verse 18 and just uh, so this uh, transition, uh, the transition goes a little smoother here. But it says, if, if I, or excuse me, I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I, re- I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit, and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he had spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. This was John himself. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then lying on Jesus' breast said unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him, then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him, for some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, he was the treasurer of the group, that Jesus had said this unto him, By those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out and It was night. Now, as most of you probably know, I am not a fan of country music. Mainly because the nature of the music itself, uh, which is because it becomes very close to rock music these days, but then especially because of the message that seems to permeate the songs of country music. The theme of most of the songs are about physical love, about cheating on your husband or boyfriend or wife or girlfriend. That's songs about divorce, things that are anything but spiritually uplifting. Invariably, you'll hear a song around the theme, I loved her, but she didn't love me. Now I'm as sad as I can be. It's real deep, isn't it? And we may shake our heads at those songs, but you know what? If that's ever happened to you, you know that it's really painful to love someone, but not to have that love returned. Even worse, for that someone that you love to deliberately hurt you. Recently, many celebrated Valentine's Day. I usually, never mind. 
But you know what? The overwhelming theme of that day is romantic love for another person. And of course, in the day that we live, there's a great perversion of this idea of love. Even as the Bible speaks of loving one another, and there is a physical aspect of love for those who are married, we must be careful to love one another in the Lord. That is, we love others with biblical principles in mind. Now, I don't love people like I love my wife. I don't love people with an ungodly, worldly kind of love, but I love people in the Lord. And I love the family of Spooner Baptist Church in the Lord. Now, that being said, we can have friends and we can have people that we love in the Lord, and they can still disappoint us. If you ever had a trusted friend, someone that you had a close relationship with, a friendship, maybe it's someone in the church or someone uh, in your neighborhood or someone that over the years you've gotten to know very well, and they turn on you and they attack you, that really hurts, doesn't it? It's surely one of life's most emotionally painful experiences. Now, to relate to that emotional pain is to understand, in part, why Jesus became troubled in his spirit. Do you remember us reading that? Jesus was troubled in his spirit. I think in verse 21, it says, He was troubled in spirit. As he thought about Judas in the upper room, on the night of his betrayal. Now, there are other things besides Judas's calloused heart which troubled Jesus that evening, and we're going to consider some of those things later. But Jesus was troubled not only with the personal pain of Judas's betrayal, but also because he knew that Judas was leaving the light of the world and stepping into the darkness of hell. When John states in verse 30, the last... Several words there, and it was night. He means more than the fact that it was dark outside. It's always night when a person rejects God's love and goes into the darkness of eternity without God. It's especially night when the son of perdition, as Judas was called, betrayed the spotless son of God into the hands of evil men. Now, to understand our text, you need to realize that Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting of the Last Supper, where men were seated next to one another on the same side of the long table, it's really historically incorrect. Now, I know there was nobody there to record the, uh, the supper, you know, with a camera. Uh, nobody was there to even paint it. But we kind of understand from Bible traditions and practices. By the way, I remember seeing this picture on the wall of my grandparents' home as I would visit them as a boy. There was a couple of pictures that they had on the wall. I have one of the pictures that they had on their wall. But uh, the other one, I, I remember seeing this one as well. And you know, when I see these kind of pictures, I'm always concerned that the artist render Jesus as has an effeminate look. And many artists did. And I think that's why it's very difficult and 
and uh, maybe not a very good idea to try to figure out what Jesus looked like. I don't think he was effeminate. But rather, this de- in this depiction with Judas missing, already having left, the men were reclining at a low table. As I understand the, the tradition of the time, they leaned on their elbows with their feet going out from the table, and John was to his right so that he would have, it would have been easy for him to uh, lean back on Jesus' breast, as it says here, and whisper in his ear, Lord, who is it? Peter was sitting across from John, so he could gesture him, hey, find out, you know, find out. Find out who it is. He wanted to know who the betrayer was. Well, Judas had probably been on Jesus' left side. That's the seat of honor. Kind of a last gesture of love from Jesus toward Judas. And after Jesus announced that one of the twelve would betray him, Judas asked, according to Matthew 26, 25, Master, is it I? Jesus replied, Thou hast said... Again, this is probably without the other disciples really hearing that. That conversation had to be whispered in private as Jesus leaned back toward Judas, and otherwise the other disciples would have known who the betrayer was, and they would, they would not have thought that you know Judas is just going out to buy some food, as it says later on here in our text. If Judas was reclining immediately to Jesus' left, he easily could have handed Judas... Uh, the morsel of bread that was dipped in a sauce of some sort and handed to the guest of honor as a gesture of love and friendship. So Jesus reached out to Judas right up to the very end. There's a kind of a mystery here, isn't there? The fact that Judas was betraying Jesus is a fulfillment of Scripture. You might make a note of Psalm 41, verse 9. And in that sense, Judas' sin was foreordained, predetermined, and yet Judas was fully responsible for his sin. He couldn't blame God for predetermining it. He couldn't blame Satan who entered into his heart immediately after he received the sop or the morsel from Jesus. And although Satan empowered Judas to carry out the betrayal, Judas was still responsible for it. He couldn't just say, well, the devil made me do it. He was still responsible, as you and I are when we betray the Lord in our sin. And after Satan entered Judas, Jesus ratified the evil choice that Judas had made by saying, that thou doest, do quickly. Now, there are really two themes here that I want to look at this morning from John's portrayal of these events in light of Jesus' glory and the awful darkness of human sin. And I Uh, We can kind of picture it like Judas' betrayal is the black velvet against which the diamond of Christ's glory shines all the brighter. The blacker the sin, the brighter the glory of Christ. And so we need to have a deeper understanding, first of all, of Christ's glory. And there are at least five sides of Jesus' glory that shine through this story. Notice, first of all, in his unfathomable wisdom. 
We see Jesus' glory in his unfathomable wisdom in choosing a man like Judas to be one of his apostles, one of his disciples. Now, in the aftermath of Judas' treachery, the other disciples must have wondered, why in the world did Jesus choose Judas to be an apostle? Why did he do that? And we may wonder the same thing. Did he not know the corrupt heart and the character flaws that caused Judas to do such a thing? Well, if he didn't know, it would seem to undermine his credentials as a Messiah, wouldn't it? Jesus knew. And if he did know, then why did he pick such a despicable character? We know that before Jesus chose the twelve, he spent the night in prayers. It tells us in Luke chapter 6. And knowing full well the Father's plan for the cross, which he came to fulfill, he picked Judas to be one of the twelve. And also, we see in John chapter 6 that Jesus knew all along that Judas was going to betray him. It says in John 6, verse 70 and 71, Jesus answered them, Have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he it was that would betray him, being one of the twelve. As we've seen throughout John's gospel, the Father sent Jesus to earth to do his will. The center of that will is our salvation, where Jesus would offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus' choice of Judas as an apostle, knowing full well that he would betray him, shows Jesus' full obedience to the will of the Father, even when that would lead to the cross. Now, none of his disciples understood the necessity of the cross until after Jesus' resurrection. So they couldn't understand at the time why he would have chosen Judas who played a key part in the events leading to the cross. Jesus choosing Judas to be an apostle kind of underscores the truth that you find in Isaiah 55 and verse 8. In that God's thoughts are not our thoughts, are they? God's ways are not our ways. And there's an application here for us. Many times we do not understand why God does what he does or why God allows certain trials to come into our lives. But you know what? We've just got to continue to trust him. We don't know why, but God does. Maybe a close friend or maybe even a spouse has betrayed you. Perhaps part of the reason God allowed it was so that you could enter more deeply into an understanding of the sufferings of Christ. And Jesus' choice of Judas displays Jesus' glory. Even though the other the other apostles may not have understood it at first. Now, we also see Jesus' glory in Judas' testimony. Now, what kind of testimony did Judas have? Well, I'm not talking about a salvation testimony. It's a testimony, though, that recognized the innocence of Jesus. Judas' defection later provides an impartial witness to Jesus' moral purity. Judas would later testify in his remorse in Matthew 27, verse 4. It says, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. 
Judas had known Jesus closely for three years, and yet he couldn't come up with a single reason to justify his own treachery against him. As Jesus rhetorically asked his enemies in John 8, which of you convinceth me of sin? No one could, not even Judas, because Jesus was without sin. So we see Christ's glory in Judas's testimony. Thirdly, we see it in his deity and his humanity. Jesus' deity in that he was in sovereign control over the events surrounding his death. And as he said regarding laying down his own life in John 10, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. You see, he was in control in, over the Jews. He didn't, they didn't want to crucify him at the Passover because of the fear of the crowd. But it was God's will for this Passover lamb to be sacrificed during the Passover. And he was in control when Judas would betray him. We see that here in this text where he says, "Thou That thou doest, do quickly. But we also see Jesus' humanity in that Judas' defection deeply troubled him. Even though he was sovereign over all these events, he was not just a stoic character, just playing a role but detach and detach from the real emotions. See, he was a man. He had emotions. As Hebrews 5, 7 says, Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears, Jesus cried. He shed tears. He was fully God, and yet he was fully man. And then we see Jesus' glory in his troubled spirit. There are a number of reasons why it says in verse 21, he was troubled in spirit. He was troubled because of the unrequited love of Judas. That would bother you and it bothered Jesus. He was troubled because of the ingratitude of Judas' heart. When someone is not thankful, that bothers me. It should bother you. He was troubled because he had a deep hatred of sin and it was sitting right there next to him. He was troubled because he was shrinking from the contact with one who would betray him. He was troubled because he knew of the eternal destiny in hell. He was troubled because he could see with his omnipotent eye Satan moving around Judas and influencing him. He was troubled because he had knowledge of the sin of the betrayer and the terrors of eternal punishment. He was troubled because he sensed all that sin and death means. He was troubled because he had an inner awareness that Judas was a classic illustration of the wretchedness of sin, sin which he he would have to bear in his own body on the next day, sin for which he would be made responsible and would die for. To make it personal, Jesus endured all that trouble and more for your salvation. So we see the glory of Jesus Christ in Jesus' wisdom, in Judas's testimony, in Jesus' deity and humanity, in Jesus' troubled spirit. And then we see Christ's glory in his patience and love. 
We see this right to the end. He had patience and love toward Judas. How many of us would have, if we knew what Jesus knew, would have the patience and love to someone like that? You know, sometimes we know that people are against us. We know that someone is betraying us. And we get upset. We get mad. We think, I've got to get even with them. I've got to do something. Jesus was patient. He was loving. Even though Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him, he didn't remove him from the apostolic circle. As I said, it's likely that here at the Last Supper, Judas was seated probably in a place of honor. Jesus honored him by giving him the morsel. Jesus didn't reveal what he knew of Judas's evil heart to the other disciples. He could have said, do you know what this guy's going to do to me? He didn't do it. He didn't tell everybody else that Judas was a scoundrel. He treated Judas with the same patience and grace as he treated the other disciples. Since none of them suspected that Judas was a betrayer. And again, here is a divine mystery that we cannot really comprehend fully. How Jesus knew that Judas was the predetermined to be the betrayer. And yet he had genuine love for Judas. And he held out that love to him. Really an offer of salvation to Judas right to the end. And we see Jesus' glory in the same way today. He endures the hostility of sinners against him with amazing patience and love. Boy, when we see the wickedness of this world, and we've seen it really flare up publicly today, especially the blasphemies against the, that are brazenly spoken against even Jesus and Christianity, Why we want to cry out, Lord, just blast those evildoers off the face of the earth. Well, that's what we want to do, isn't it? Hey, that day is coming. That day will come. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Yeah, God's going to take care of all that. But just a minute, wait a minute. What does it say just before that verse? In 2 Peter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any man should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see the patience and the love there? And if there's someone here this morning who's never repented of your sins and trusted Christ, He is patiently, lovingly entreating you to come to Him for eternal life while you still can. And so as we see Jesus Jesus and Judas, we should grow deeper in seeing the glory of our Savior. But there's another side to this story. Notice, we need to have a deeper understanding of human sin. 
Judas' betrayal of Jesus should give us a deeper understanding of the terrible depths of human sin. It is people who have the deepest understanding of sin and what it means who have the greatest understanding and appreciation of the love and grace and the mercy and kindness of God. You know, a superficial view of sin leads to a superficial view of salvation and a superficial view of everything else. And so in order to measure the love of God, you must first go down before you can come up. You do not start on the level and then go up. We have to be brought down from the dungeon, from, as the psalmist said, from the pit. Psalm 40. He brought me up out of a horrible pit. And unless you know something of the measure of that depth, you will only be measuring half the love of God. So let's go down for a moment here and learn five lessons from Judah's sin so that these lessons will give us a greater understanding of God's love and grace. Number one, an awful, the awful nature of sin. That's what Judas shows us. Before we start throwing stones at Judas and saying, well, how could he do such a thing? Well, that scoundrel. Before we do that, we need to realize that apart from God's grace, we're all just like he was. We all had the seeds of betrayal in our hearts before God graciously saved us. Think of what Judas had witnessed in these three years. Being closely associated with Jesus, he had heard Jesus teaching both in public and in private. He had witnessed most of Jesus' miracles. He had seen Jesus' grace and love toward ungrateful and the unloving people. He had never seen any hint of sin in Jesus whether public or private. And yet, he betrayed Jesus to the Jewish leaders for a few lousy pieces of silver. Judas teaches us that sinners need more than a good example to be saved. Judas had the best example who ever lived, but he was still dead in his trespasses and sins. And unless the Holy Spirit works in the heart to bring about repentance of sin, believing in Christ, transforming their lives, a good example does not save. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, the religious Nicodemus, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. And then notice that Judas gives us a solemn warning. Judas shows us that Jesus supplies religious sinners with a solemn warning. Jesus, or Judas, is one of many warnings in the Bible that especially apply to religious people. You know, religious people are often blind to their own need for new birth. Maybe they grow up in church. They know all the religious terminology. They can even quote scripture. They have served in various ministries and perhaps they are even had some theological training. But like Judas, they've never repented of their sins. The apostle Paul was like that before his conversion. He took great pride in his religious heritage. He was more zealous than many of his contemporaries in persecuting the church, which he considered to be apostate from the Jewish faith. But God had to strike Paul down 
on the Damascus Road and bring him to see all that religious self-righteousness was a bunch of garbage compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And so if you grew up in church, as I did, and you're familiar with religious matters, the warning is for you. You need the new birth just as Judas needed it. You need to repent of your self-righteousness and come to God as a guilty sinner to receive the mercy that is offered at the cross. And then notice here that Judas indicates to us that we can expect to find hypocrites. Judas shows us we can expect to find hypocrites among the followers of Jesus. You know, often the skeptics will say they don't believe in Jesus because of all the hypocrites in church. Well, you know what? Yes, there are hypocrites in the world, too. There was a hypocrite among the original disciples. But that doesn't invalidate who Jesus was. The key issue is who Jesus is, not whether some of his professed followers are hypocrites. We just need to make sure we're not a hypocrite. Now keep in mind that Judas didn't look like a villain. He didn't dress in a dark cloak and, you know, have a hood over his head and like he was going to betray the Lord. He didn't look like that. He looked like all the other disciples. When Jesus announced that one of the twelve would betray him, the other eleven didn't turn, oh, it must be Judas, because he looks like a villain. No, he didn't look like a villain. They all said, Lord, is it I? Even when Judas left the room to do his dirty deed, the others didn't suspect him. John, who had just found out, was probably too shocked to say anything. If Peter understood what, that it was Judas, he was too stunned to say anything, believe that or not. The rest thought that Judas was just going out to buy some more food. You know, they just had a big supper. The, you know, we need some more food. Or maybe they thought Judas was going to go give some alms to the poor. See, Judas was playing his role beautifully. And hypocrites can fool other people. But you know what? You never fool God. God who looks on the heart. And so we shouldn't be shocked, although we often are, when someone maybe in a respected church leader turns away from the faith. It doesn't shock the Lord because He knows and He keeps all who are truly His And so this is a warning in advance that Judas' defection would not shake their faith. He keeps, keep your focus on Jesus. Don't look at those who are falling away. Keep looking to Jesus. And then we notice that Judas is a warning about our inner motives. Judas gives a warning about our inner motives. Why did Judas become a disciple of Jesus? Probably he thought that Jesus would set up a political kingdom and Judas would be in line for a top job in this new administration. Even James and John had aspirations of sitting at Jesus' right and left in the kingdom, but things weren't going quite as Judas had hoped. Jesus was talking more and more about his death. 
The religious leaders weren't lining up behind him to support his claims of being the Messiah. And so, in disappointment, Judas bails out by betraying Jesus for a few pieces of silver. And I believe the application is here, why do you follow Jesus? Now, most of us would have to admit that we came to Jesus for selfish reasons. We had some needs or some desires, and we hoped Jesus could meet those needs. But what do you, what do, you do when things don't go as smoothly, as smoothly as you expected them to go? What do you do when, rather than more blessings, you have more trials? What do you do when you discover the path Jesus has called you to walk leads you to a cross before it leads you to a crown? You still follow him? You still seek to glorify him? Or at such times do you turn your back in disappointment and even worse, turn against Jesus? And then notice, fifthly, Judas shows us we have opportunities to receive Christ's love. Judas shows us that we should never walk away from the opportunity to receive the love of Christ. Jesus loved Judas. Remember, he washed Judas' feet as well as the others. He offered Judas the opportunity to repent right up to the end. But Judas walked away from the love of Jesus. Later, like Esau, who could not find repentance, though he sought for it with tears, Judas felt remorse, but not repentance. It's one thing to be sorry for your sin, but it's another thing to repent of your sin. He threw down his betrayal money in the temple. He went away and he hanged himself. Don't reject the love of Christ. No matter how badly you may have sinned, the Lord Jesus is graciously still reaching out to you, even right now through this message. God loves you. He invites thirsty sinners to come and take the water of life without cost. So let Judas teach you the bitter end of those who walk away from the love of Jesus. So we've talked about the glory of Christ, seen in his wisdom, Judas's testimony, the Lord's deity and humanity, his troubled spirit, and certainly his patience and love. Don't we serve a great God? We have a wonderful Savior in Jesus Christ. But you know, we've also talked about understanding human sin. Talked about, talked about the nature of sin and how Judas' sin should be a warning to us. We've looked at being hypocritical, having the wrong motives, and having the opportunity to receive Christ's love. As I've thought about this, meditated upon these truths, I can't help but ask the question, are we honest? Are we honest with God? Are we honest with ourselves? Are we honest with others? You see, Judas seemed to be a good man. He seemed to be a follower of Christ, and yet he wasn't saved. He was deceitful, 
and he was not an honest man. Are you honest today? Has there truly been a time in your life when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you truly believe He died for your sin, was buried and rose again the third day to provide you everlasting life? Have you repented of your sinful lifestyle and turned to serve the true and living God? You would do well to heed the warning of Judas. And if you have then are you living an honest life as a follower of Christ? Or are there things in your life that are just not quite right? What are the motives for what you think and do? Are you selfish? Are you self-centered? Are you hypocritical in your Christian life? You know, unbelievers are not the only hypocrites. God's people can be hypocritical too. Many times... God's people have their own agenda. They, may, they appear to be godly and they may be even faithful to church and yet they harbor sinful thoughts and they hide sinful actions. Again, don't reject God's love and allow the grace of God, but allow the grace of God to reign in your life. Alexander White was a great Scottish preacher. Lived in the 1800s, early 1900s, he magnified the awfulness of sin and graciousness of Christ in his sermons. But he always was more aware of his own sins than he was of others. An evangelist once went to Edinburgh and criticized the ministers of that city. And a friend told White, you know what, the, an- the evangelist told, uh, said last night that Dr. Wilson is not a converted man. White jumped from his chair and he said, That rascal, Dr. Wilson, not a converted man? And then the friend also reported that the evangelist had said that Dr. White was not converted. At that, White stopped short. He sat down. He put his face into his hands. He was silent for a long time. And then he said to his visitor, Leave me, friend, leave me. I must examine my heart. You see, that's the effect the story of Judas should have on us. We should soberly examine our own hearts before God. What kind of testimony do you have before others? Saved or unsaved? Do people know that you are truly a born-again Christ follower? See, that's what a Christian is, a Christ follower. Not just by name, But there's evidence of a life that is humble and honest with themselves and God and others. And I think if we were truly honest today, there would probably be many things that we would do differently. I wonder this morning, would you allow the Lord to search your heart? Let's bow our heads in prayer.